continue on our, our little series we've been doing on uh, looking, th we're looking through um, the ages and we're uh, looking at God's prevailing work through the various centuries. We're, we didn't quite finish up the fourth century this last time. I want to try to do that. There, there we go. Got it. Uh, the the uh, fourth century. So uh, uh, just a couple of quick things to get us up to speed here. And I want to uh, get you to some scriptures as well tonight as, that tie in with the, uh, the subject matter we have before us. Um, we looked last time at uh, a number of things, but uh, one of the things that we finished up with toward the end, and we kind of rapidly went through it, was uh, where the, uh, the big departures were from biblical Christianity. What occurred in the fourth century really was a, was a major wholesale departure from biblical Christianity. Up until then, there had been, you know, issues. There had been doctrinal error that had been, you know, latched onto by different groups, and there was quite a bit of, uh, you know, disagreement about uh, the source of Scripture. There were those that really were concerned more than others about the purity of Scripture, others that were less concerned. In the first and second, third century, there was, you know, pretty steady persecution of Christians, um, whatever camp they were in, so to speak. There was pretty steady persecution of everybody that, uh, you know, identified themselves as a Christian. In those first three centuries, there were some periods of respite where we didn't see the degree of persecution that we did in other periods, but by and large, you know, the resistance to biblical Christianity was great in the first three centuries. And, and that, of course, in itself does tend to produce a measure of unity when um, you have, you know, the world against you and uh, you're standing for Christ. It does tend to produce unity. You see that, you know, when America is all divided and then when we're attacked from some outside source, all of a sudden all the differences diminish and we become, you know, one nation under God um, uh, like that. So there, there's, that is something we've seen in the first three centuries. We got in the fourth century, and here's where we saw the, the um, you know, the birth, if you will, of the, uh, the Roman Catholic philosophy uh, with Constantine, and we talked about that, how the Roman Catholic Church was established really in that fourth century, and really at the end, by the end of the fourth century, it was pretty well organized and pretty well-oiled machine by that time. Uh, so we we saw that, and then we began to point out some of the departures. We saw that Christianity, uh, and I put that in quotes, Christianity of the uh, of the you know the the uh, large city um, metropolitan area kind. That kind of Christianity became more of a political force, and you had a Roman Catholic, uh, the Roman Church ministers, and those that were part of the accepted, you know, body there of which what came to be called the Catholic Church. Um, that Those ministers uh, were paid now by the state uh, of Rome, and uh, that was a great departure from biblical Christianity. The third change we saw was the church, churches were beginning to be filled up with unbelievers, these these, uh, you know, these metropolitan type churches that were more interested in, in uh, you know, their union with the state than they were with biblical faith. So they were being filled with, uh, with unconverted persons in the hope. The hope was among some of the, you know, more concerned of those groups that bringing these people in would eventually, you know, they would sort of evolve into Christianity. 
by becoming part of the group. So that was the philosophy of some. Uh, others, uh, you know, in the leadership didn't care really one way or another. There was a there was political gain in it. So you had that happening there pretty much wholesale. Um, and uh, the, um, the Emperor Constantine, you know, wanted all of his subjects to be identified as Christians. And so he had them, you know, go through the rituals and, uh, and baptism and so, such like that. Uh, but many of them came in without any really understanding of what repentance and faith in Christ really was. So that's a big change. And then number four was that uh, churches... Uh, Though they'd always met on Sunday from the time of the resurrection, for the first time this was put into the civil code that Sunday was the day of worship, and so it was it was you know encoded into the law uh, there in the Roman law that the Sunday was the day of worship there. So that was a change uh, that took place. Previous to that, they worshipped on Sunday because that was the day of the resurrection, and every week they celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that became the custom. Uh, of the Christians. It was the day after the Sabbath that the Jews um, celebrate their uh, or uh, call their holy day. And so um, that, but that was instituted into the civil code at that point. So when we're looking at that. We saw Satan's devices against the church were, first of all, in the first century were just to kill as many Christians. And then the second century was to the work that Satan did to des- destroy the scriptures, uh, to attempt to destroy the scriptures. The third century, we saw not the destruction, but then the alteration of the scriptures, the adding to and taking away. That continued on into the fourth century as well, where the scriptures were not only, you know, um, altered, added to, taken away from, argued over in that sense, uh, but by the fourth century, you had had actual efforts to pollute the purity of the scriptures uh, and and to, um, to change them dramatically. So you have Satan at work and all, you know, you have the acts of Satan going on through all, all the way through there. Um, but uh, so let's uh, pick it up from that point. We didn't get to number five in the change and the big fourth century change that happened uh, in, um, in, re- in relationship to these other things was the, the, there was a new official Bible produced. And so you have that, uh, that work going on. The Roman church, uh, you know, uh, is, um, Gaining, gaining, gaining in influence, and so there's a there's a desire for a new a new and official Bible. There were already by this time there were already two lines of Bibles. Okay, so you had you had one group that were really concerned about the purity of Scripture and about preserving the Scripture true to the original autographs, and, and so you had that group of people, um, and then you had another line come out of Alexandria the college at Alexandria in Egypt, and there were, it was more of an intellectual influence in that line, more concerned for the intellectual aspects and more concerned for uh, how the Bible related to the culture and such like that. So there wasn't as much concern in that line of thinking. Um, you know, it was, the, it was the universities, the intellectuals. There wasn't much, as much concern in that line of thinking for, for remaining true to the purity of the original autographs. Uh, you know, there just wasn't the commitment to, uh, to preser- preserving the pure word of God there in that line. So there's these two lines already, you know, developing. They weren't fully, you know, they weren't fully identifiable probably uh, by the third century, but they were coming, uh, they were coming, becoming more and more obvious, you know, the, the two different streams of... Uh, of Bible manuscripts that were were developing, being being added to all the time, because 
Bible manuscripts, as you understand, are copies, handwritten copies of others that have, that have come into the hands of the scribes. So uh, you have, you know, that, that's what we're talking about with manuscripts and the preservation of manuscripts. So we don't have any way of, you know, copying them perfectly with machines up, up to the, you know, Gutenberg Press in the 1400s. Uh, all, of this, all of this we're talking about was people sitting down at a desk, the pen and paper and a scroll or a codex, and looking at this page and writing, repeating that on this page. And so, uh, so you have that's going on thousands and thousands and multiplied thousands of times. And you have, uh, you know, those scribes that were trained with the, come up from the line that the Hebrew scribes came up from, which was, if you, uh, if you want some interesting research, look at what the Hebrew scribes, uh, the commitment that the Hebrew scribes had to the purity of scriptures was, un, was remarkable. It was it was, uh, you know, of God, obviously, but, uh, but this line of uh, scribes were persons that were very careful uh, to preserve the accuracy of the scriptures from the piece they were copying to the piece that they copied, uh, and others weren't. There were those that, you know, felt no um, compunction about correcting, changing, adding to, or taking away anywhere they thought was was inaccurate. So, so it becomes the, the work of the scribes, you know, on this line of Bibles, the, the Alexandrian line, becomes the philosophy of the scribes that we just need to, you know, we may, need to make this be what we believe God meant by that, you know. So, so um, they didn't have near the commitment to purity as the, uh, uh, as the ones that uh, your English Bible that you have in your hand tonight came from. So with that, um, with that going on in the, in the um, 4th century and, and, the, and Constantine wanting to have unity, I mean, that was his philosophy was Christianity is really gaining steam here. And I, uh, I can see that there's a great unity in Christianity. And, and he could see the, you know, the black clouds on the horizon with his, uh, with his, with his empire and thought, if I can unify, if I can use this to unify my empire, boy, there's no stopping us. And so it was a, his philosophy, his idea had to do with unity, and that's, you know, a historical fact. It had to do with unity, with uniting. And so one of the things he wanted to do was solve this question of these, these various uh, issues, controversies about the Bible, about, you know, what, what it said. There were, you know, there were issues that kept coming up. You know, this one... This line said this, and this line didn't, and this was added, and this was taken away. And so his thought was, well, I'm just going to have, I'm going to produce what we would call today an ecumenical Bible, one that, you know, everybody's happy with, one that just has a little bit of something for everybody, you know. So uh, the ecumenical Bible, that's what he had in mind. So he commissioned that to be uh, produced, and uh, Eusebius of Caesarea was the, individual that was the machine was the uh, man behind it you know was com he was the one commissioned to prepare 50 of these official bibles and that what these would be they would be they would be uh, very carefully printed on um, uh, on vellum vellum who knows what vellum is what's vellum animal. yeah animal skin prefer uh, i've heard most most of the time it had it was deer hide but i suppose it could be any any animal skin, but deer hide particular was the vellum, and they would carefully prepare that. Uh, and vellum was something that would last. It wasn't like the parchment that the you know the original autographs were written on. 
it would last. And so the idea was let's get 50 of these very carefully produced uh, ident identical Bibles, and we'll put them in the in the centers of uh, of our uh, of our religious empire. And so they were gonna they were going to uh, uh, have uh, some of them in Constantinople, and some of them in Rome. And so people that would have a question would have to come to one of those sources to determine well what the scripture really said. Now the trouble is they were already altered and they were already you know had. Uh, issues with them already, uh, things already wrong with them. They were, another issue with them was the Bible was written, the autographs, the original autographs were, uh, much of them were written in what they call Koine Greek, which was just like the common language Greek that, uh, you know, would be the regular people would speak, Koine Greek. But they, these uh, official Bibles, with the intellectual aspect and the formalities and everything and the ritualistic mentality that uh, came with Constantine's uh, uh, desire to unify the empire, the ritualism that was part of all this demanded that they be written in uncials, which were, uh, which are, which is uh, the formal um, written language, the formal written language in Greek. And so it was not the common Koine Greek, but the formal Greek, the business Greek, the intellectual level Greek uh, that was preferred there. And uncials were all capital letters. So, so they had... Uh, they had that to work with. This was in 331 that, uh, you know, they began this process. Uh, Eusebius lived from 260 to 339 A.D., and uh, he didn't finish the work. It was taken over by others, uh, but uh, those, some scholars from Alexandria were involved and some from Caesarea, and um, there was a great deal of, of uh, work put into these. Now, some, there's some, um, some who believe, and it may be so, that the Vaticanus manuscript that is in Rome that so many of the modern Bibles is, are, uh, you know, traced back to, uh, the Vaticanus manuscript there, many believe that this was actually one of those 50 uh, Bibles. It is vellum, it's put on vellum, and it, and it is in the right uh, era. So uh, likely it is very, one of those very 50 Bibles that, uh, that uh, Constantine uh, ordered. So, so you have those, you know, with the with the intent that they standardize the Bible and that they be the go-to Bible for folks to have. Uh, Constantinople, of course, is, was, used to be Byzantium, and then now it's what? Anybody know what Constantinople is now? Yeah, Istanbul, and that's, of course, uh, a Turkish um, you know, Muslim influence now, but uh, Istanbul. So, um, so Constantine's effort was, was um, you know, underway. And that was certainly had an, uh, had an impact on those that believed the Bible. So as you'd expect, with the addition of a lot of unconverted Roman citizens to the church, uh, uh, there were a number of other practices that came along with it. The religion, you know, was more ritualistic. Um, and, you know, the, the, uh, the mother and child, Madonna and child, the, the philosophy of the idea of a mother uh, and, a ch and a god child, a mother goddess and a god child was present in all the pagan cultures. Every one of the pagan cultures that you read had somewhere, has somewhere in it a, you know, a, a mother goddess with a child god, god uh, involved. So, um, so it was a, an easy transition for you know, uh, Constantine and the Roman, Roman church there, the Metropolitan Church, to uh, ascribe those kind of characteristics to Mary and Jesus. And so that's where you have the, you know, the deification of Mary 
that has taken place within Romanism, you know, traces back to that. But uh, just a, a Christianized version of what they had been doing all along. Now, at the end of the fourth century, the Latin Vulgate was produced by a man by the name of Jerome. Uh, Jerome was a secretary to uh, Pope Damascus in the latter part of the fourth century. And he was commissioned to uh, create a Vulgate, what was called the Latin Vulgate, very well-known among uh, Roman Catholics. It's still the go-to Bible for Roman Catholicism, the Latin Vulgate, but Jerome's Latin Vulgate. So, but it didn't gain uh, ascendancy until about the 8th century. It wasn't really accepted uh, you know, by, by Christians at large and, until the Roman Church you know, um, finally got it, got it uh, into popular usage by the 8th century. So the Latin Vulgate was produced, and um, that really was the Bible that introduced the Dark Ages uh, to, uh, to the world. So from about, you know, from about 400 A.D. to about 1400 A.D., some say a little sooner, a little later, but in that era is the Dark Ages where this Jerome's Latin Vulgate becomes the Bible of the priests and becomes off-limits to the people uh, over over time, it becomes more and more the case. But that is what's going on in, in the uh, fourth century there. You know, they also, also we saw the, as we mentioned before, the error that baptism washes away sin. You know, that error was became very uh, rooted, well-rooted in the fourth century. Uh, Emperor Valens in 370 AD insisted that his dying son, his dying child, be baptized. Um, and that's really the first instance, as I mentioned before, that we can find of, uh, of an infant or a very young uh, underage child being, being uh, baptized. And so, uh, so during the fourth century, now we go over to our side of things, you got uh, the Donatists. The Donatists were the prominent opposers of the errors of the state church. So that's your, your heritage and my heritage is the Donatists. That's the crowd we want to hang with. He, he, Donatus was the individual after whom the Donatists were called. And they didn't take that name. They just got called that by their detractors. So they didn't, you know, they didn't receive the name uh, Donatus. They just got, that's what they were, were referred to as. Uh, Donatus died in 355. He was, a, he was a preacher, a bishop in North Africa. And so, uh, but he was a Bible believer. He loved the word. And uh, he detested what was going on in the metropolitan churches and all of the, you know, uh, the wave of acceptance that was being uh, foisted on those churches and the, uh, the intermingling of error with truth there. Just that was something that, uh, you know, he couldn't stomach. So um, he led many to, you know, take a stand against that. And these churches that did, which were many of them, many, many, uh, not just churches, were, were standing, you know, true to the, to the scriptures and, and opposed to what was developing now into the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't, uh, you know, yet fully marked like we think of it, but it was developing in the Roman Catholic Church by that fourth century. So uh, Donatus stood for these principles, and, and so the churches that he, his name is connected with, uh, church membership was re to be reserved for only saved people, Separation uh, from corrupted churches and corrupted practices was preached. Uh, separation of the church from the state influence was preached. Biblical baptism only after conversion was a, uh, was a byword of the Donatists. And then the independence of churches, the, the, the autonomy of the local church, the congregational construction of the local church uh, with a local pastor and not the 
external influences coming from the metropolitan centers was a, uh, a uh, hallmark of the Donatists. And then the freedom of conscience, the fact that every individual has the freedom of conscience to choose to uh, worship God or not to, that was a, uh, you know, another, uh, that's one, one of the things we call one of our Baptist you know, principles, the backbone of our Baptist principles is one of those is a freedom of conscience that we, uh, you know, we, we uh, fight for everyone's right to uh, choose after their own conscience whether they'll serve God or honor God or worship God or who they will worship or not worship, the freedom of conscience. So that was a good thing there. Let's take our Bibles to Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 2 for a minute and read verse 10 to 13. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 to 13. These Donatists were, you know, a thorn in the side of those metropolitan churches, and um, they were prepared to suffer, and indeed they did. Re Revelation chapter 2, verse uh, 10 to verse 13. Let's take a look at that. Revelation 2, verse 10 to verse 13. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall, shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days, and thou shalt be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He, uh, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So, um, well, let's read verse 12 and 13 also. And the angel of the, uh, to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast thine, my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. And so, um, you know, even as John wrote the prophecies of the book of Revelation and warned the churches of what was to come, he recognized that uh, there was to be these series of persecutions that would take place. Now, the Roman Empire, the Roman um, government actually condemned, formally condemned the Donatists about as early as 314 A.D., even, even just a year after Constantine had declared, you know, Christianity the state religion. But he's quick to condemn, uh, his government is quick to condemn the Donatists for their position. Call them, call them heretics. If you go to the, you know, to the public school and get a secular history textbook, a world history, you're going to look up and they're going to talk about the church, early church and it's going to be all, they won't say necessarily this Roman Catholic Church, but they're going to say, they're going to call everything that, was the early church, the Roman Catholic Church, and everybody that disagreed with it were called heretics. So they'll just be heretics. Anybody else, they don't, they don't really bother to name Donatists, Monetists, you know, Novatians, uh, Cathari, or uh, any of the Puritans or Anabaptists. They don't talk about any of those specifically. They just say heretics because they didn't agree with the church, you know, so, um, uh, so-called the church. So, so that was 314 A.D. By 326, an edict was, uh, was granted um, uh, that there would be religious freedom only to ad adherents of the Metropolitan Church, of the Roman Catholic Church, the, the only uh, ones that were going to have religious freedom. By 347, there was outright war declared against the Donatists. Now, the Donatists weren't fighting. They weren't taking up arms and, and fighting. Uh, and Baptists, Anabaptists, have never, have never tried to convert by force and power, have never used uh, the opportunities to use weaponry or force to, uh, in hope to convert anyone. But that was not true of the Roman Catholics. Uh, in 347, Constantius, which was followed Constantine, um, authorized the 
he first of all tried to buy them, you know. He authorized a bounty, and he called it alms. He said, all you churches that are out there that are resisting, I'll tell you what, we'll just make life easy for you. We'll give you a bounty. We'll give you alms. We'll take care of every need that your people have, your church has. We'll make it easy for you. And so it was nothing, it was disguised as alms. It was called alms giving, uh, but it was nothing but a bribe, you know. And said, uh, they, of course, <laughs> the Donatists refused it. Uh, it would have been the easy way to go, just to, you know, identify themselves with them with the Roman church at, uh, there and, and uh, get out of the persecution, but uh, they would not do that. So they, they rejected the bounty, they rejected the almsgiving, as the Roman Catholic Church called it, and uh, following right after that, a general was appointed to make war against all Donatists. And so their properties were confiscated, uh, their churches were burned, uh, their buildings were burned, and they were scattered, they were persecuted and killed, and, and that went on for 42 Long years, the Donatists had no respite from uh, the persecutions uh, during all that period of time. Look at John chapter 16 and verse 2. That war against the Donatists, many thought, was a, probably a fulfillment of this. In their era, in their time, they said this is the fulfillment of John chapter 16 and verse 2. And so we'll take a look at that. John uh, 16 verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh when whosoever killeth you will think that he doth God's service. Uh, so that was the attitude of the generals and the leaders. They were thinking, you know, we're doing God's work. The crusaders and so forth later, later on in the later century, we're going to see them. They were thinking they were doing God's work by killing people, you know, that didn't agree with them and killing everybody that disagreed. Uh, Augustine is a great hero of Roman Catholics and, the, and Protestants as well. Augustine was a brilliant man in his, in his day, and he was converted to Christianity uh, late in this fourth century. But uh, as time progressed, he became a favorite of the established church, the Roman church there, and uh, he was very approving of the persecution of non-Catholics. He uh, didn't believe they deserved to live. And so he lived a long time from 354 to 430 A.D., but his influence was very powerful against the Donatists there. So he's no, no friend of Bible believers uh, for sure. Now, there were periods in his life, and there were some things they wrote were excellent and biblical and scriptural, uh, but he departed from that when he saw the Donatists uh, in their position against the Romanism. So, uh, so he cannot be, his writings, uh, if you read anything about Augustine, you've got to be very careful uh, you know, about, about that because he was not, he was no friend of Bible believers. And 380, um, all those who wouldn't embrace the name Catholic Christian were condemned as demented and insane. So their assemblies were forbidden and they were not allowed to be called a church. Uh, by 386, all who would not embrace Catholicism were judged then guilty of treason against the state because Roman Catholicism was the state. So you're treasonous, of course, and it's true, you're treason against the state. If you, you know, say the state is wrong and you're, you oppose the doctrines of the state, uh, that, uh, you know, that was considered treasonous there. So, so um, you know, uh, be thou faithful unto death, um, Revelation 2, verse 10 through 13, we read that, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. So, you know, the Donatists were, were our forebearers. We thank God for the fact that they stood true, and their message was not lost, you know. The, the two lines of Bibles 
God did preserve the true line, the faithful line, and we still have it today. And so we're thankful that we have the Bible as it was originally intended, as it was originally written, in our hands. It's, it's in English for us, but it is, uh, you know, very, very much accurately the, the Word of God in the English language for us today. And Donatists are, uh, in large part, the ones we need to thank when we get to heaven for that. Now, it was, now the Donatists were, you know, were the third group of those we've been hearing called heretics. We remember the others uh, before them, the Montanists and, you know, and the Novatians before that, the Donatists. And up in France, you have, a, you have another group coming out called the Cathari, and that means pure, pure or Puritans. These groups were all called by other names, too. They were all called, uh, they weren't all called, but the Donatists were called Puritans. The others and the Donatists, all of them were called Anabaptists, Anabaptists. So they were rebaptizing there. So, uh, so we thank the Lord for our, our heritage that we have there, and we can thank God for the fact that, you know, when the persecution came for them, they didn't, uh, they didn't bend the knee. Brother Hall and I were talking about that. We were wondering if we would have the courage, you know, if we faced that level of persecution and were given that choice, you can have money and you can have a good life and you can have it easy by just saying, you know, you don't even have to really mean it. You can just say it on the outside that I'm a Roman Catholic, you know, and you can have money and a good life or we're going to, you know, put your eyes out or we're going to put you on the rack or we're going to, you know, torture you until you... Uh, deny Christ. You know, we, none of us knows if we'd have the courage and strength to do that until it comes to that. I hope we would, but I don't know. I don't know. I know only the Lord knows. So, and we can thank God that you know we're we're in we're in a place we're in a country that, uh, like I was telling Brother Hall earlier today, we were talking. We're in a country that we're still living under the shadow of the grace that was provided for us by forebearers that went before us and paid a price for the freedoms that we now enjoy as American Christians, you know. We're still, we're still coasting on other people's labors, you know, because uh, we really haven't had to stand. We haven't had to fight. We haven't had to suffer like some of our forebearers did, you know, in our, even in our country. You know, you read, the, you read the heritage of our country, and you find some severe, severe persecution of Baptist people. Anabaptists, uh, you know, read the story of Obadiah Holmes sometime, you know, his beatings that he... Uh, that he uh, took for for just just preaching the Bible, you know, just preaching the word without the permission of the Roman Church, you know, just uh, read some of the testimonies of those that suffered at the hands of the Episcopal uh, powers that be. Read the testimonies in America of some of those Baptist people that gave such a price uh, for Schubel Stearns and so many others that you don't hear of in any of the secular history books. You don't even mention them, you know. But, uh, but they've left a great testimony. Baptist churches are here today because of all of those guys like that, uh, Holmes, uh, Obadiah Holmes, and, and Roger Williams to some degree, but more John Clark over there in the east and Shubal Stearns down in uh, the Virginias and, and that. Just hundreds and hundreds of churches that came out of their uh, ministries and their people suffered along with them too, you know. Uh, being outcasts and being the ones that were, uh, you know, not not uh, the social elite and not the socially accepted and not the ones that got invited to the balls and the conferences and the get-togethers, but the ones that met in the tents and met out in the fields and met out in the woods and met where they could and baptized, uh, you know, in the rivers and such like that. That's your heritage as a as a Bible-believing Baptist, and and uh, we'll we'll see more of that when we get up into the uh, you know 19th century. 18th century, 19th century, we'll see more of, more of uh, you know, it'll be people more familiar to us with, with, uh, with our 
heritage as well that we have to thank God for. But uh, up to this point, we've got the, you know, we've got the Montanists, the Novatians, and the Donatists. Those three are our forebearers that we need to thank God for. Well, let's go ahead and stop it right there. We'll uh, have our prayer time uh, now and give you this opportunity to, to pray. I ask you to pray for uh, Brother Kyle Rodiker. I was visiting with him a little bit today over the telephone. Uh, some challenges that he has in his life right now, and so uh, God's uh, uh, giving giving some direction there, asking for you to uh, pray that God will give him uh, real clarity uh, in some decisions he needs to be making in the next uh, couple of weeks. So pray for Kyle Roddick, or one of our own uh, out there. And so, uh, uh, Brother uh, Braun, how are you uh, traveling back this week? What's, what's your travel situation? Week and a half, going to be here for a week and a half, all right. So pray for the bronze as they're here uh, on a little break and that their travel journey mercies uh, uh, there as well. And we'd appreciate you, you doing that. And uh, pray for Cy, he's got the broken wrist. He's uh, in a little bit of pain. Uh, and uh, so we ask you to pray for him. He's praying that it won't have to be operated on. He's going to learn that next week. But he's praying that it won't have to be operated on, that the cast will, will be sufficient. But they're not sure they got it set right. So they may have to go in and break it and reset it. So uh, he didn't really want him to do that so much. So uh, pray that his, um, his, the Lord's will be done with his wrist situation as he heals up. And, and we'd, we'd appreciate that. I didn't have any other prayer requests that were uh, handed to me. Oh, yes, Mrs. Trolley? What's that? Oh, going to Florida. Okay, yeah. Is Ruth? Ruth is? Okay. So Ruth traveling to Florida, so pray for her as uh, she travels as well and for the Israeli family. And uh, so that's good. Brother Matt? Uh, heart, heart failure, Aunt Wilma. Okay. Okay, all right. Let's pray for Matt's Aunt Wilma Hospital Heart condition. Uh, ask the Lord's help and grace there in, in that matter. So appreciate you if you do that. Saturday, if you come go with us, we'd love to have you come. We had a good crowd out the last couple of Saturdays and encourage you to come along and go out and, and uh, help us get the word out on Saturday at 10 o'clock uh, here on uh, in our uh, four-year there with me. So uh, remember that. Okay, let's go ahead. If you're physically able to go down to your knees in prayer, I'll call on a couple to word our prayer for us and